This is The Writer's Show. Welcome back. Glad you could join us again. If you're new to the cast, welcome. How are you doing? Going to get you something? A coffee? Something stronger? Make yourself at home over there. This is The Writer's Show because we talk to writers about writing. And today's show is a good one. We're delving into the world of graphic novels with Australian author Morgan Quaid. Morgan loves building rich, complex worlds and exploring those worlds through fast-paced narratives, which take the reader on a thrill ride they'll never forget. If you're a fan of speculative fiction, steampunk horror and kick-ass fantasy, then listen up and find out what you need to do to produce a graphic novel. Let's get on with the show. This is Morgan Quaid. been in this indie writing biz for quite a while now what's your secret uh, <laughs> um, a uh, deep obsession with writing that that I would be doing even if I wasn't um, trying to make a living out of it and uh, all the rest of it I think um, I've heard it said you know by a few people that writing is like a form of possession or of therapy mm. and I think in my case that's that's definitely the case of if I go for a period of time without writing, I tend to get um, a little bit squirrely uh, in the mind. So it's it's something I have to do. Um, and yeah, if I can do it and actually get books out there that people can read and enjoy and interact with, then so much the better. So what's what's the Morgan Quaid story? The Morgan Quaid story. Okay, so uh, I started. Uh, I was, born at a very young age in, in the city of uh, Melbourne, um, got interested in writing very early on, uh, but not so much uh, comics or that sort of stuff, which is something that came a, a lot later in life, uh, but more just anything to do with fantasy or sci-fi or anything with strange new worlds or, you know, those sorts of things. And I was particularly drawn to things that weren't um, uh, the ordinary sort of fantasy epic adventure sort of stuff um so I, I i mean i don't get me wrong i love uh film i love you know anything to do with marvel or dc or anything like that. i'll watch anything love that sort of stuff but it wasn't really what i was drawn to i was drawn more to the peculiar and the a little bit more esoteric i suppose um uh, in my tastes um and so i obviously read a lot and then in my 20s moved towards trying to uh, write novels uh, and you know set myself up as a, as a writer uh, all, all you know part-time while I was working uh, in a variety of different um, jobs that I was increasingly unhappy with uh, but um, yeah so it sort of started from there uh, for about 10 years I was writing novels uh, first of all trying to figure out how you write a novel which was part of the whole process it was still a bit of a, a mystery to me <laughs> even after my sixth or seventh novel I was still not quite sure I'd cracked how you do this thing, um, but kept persevering, uh, started doing a little bit of self-publishing and then, you know, spent a long time trying to get a literary agent and go down the traditional route and then being bitterly disappointed year on year uh, as that didn't sort of pan out the way that I thought it would or hoped it would. Um, and then it was uh, about 10 years ago now or eight or nine years ago, uh, I was in Brisbane City um, having a look at a comic book shop in there. Uh, and as I said, I'd never been into comics as a, a young person, as a kid. Um, 
but uh, I was amazed with the indie comic range and just the the fact that every um, genre, every style, every topic seemed to be up for grabs. You could you could do a book on anything. It was a it was a lot more like film than yeah, yeah. traditional ideas of you know comics. Um, so I you know gave them all my money and grabbed everything that I could and started educating myself and then immediately started transitioning novels from novels to comic scripts and then learning the ropes and doing all that and that's where I am now where I'm doing uh, you know writing novels comics graphic novels the whole uh, kit and caboodle um, there's also a music side of the story which is uh, sort of parallel to this. I've always been involved in music and done quite a lot with um, film and television in the, in the background with music and supporting other producers and indie artists and those sorts of things. And that's actually how I've been able to fund paying for the artwork for the comic side of things as well. So it's kind of those two two streams. Do you work with the same artists or you, you use different artists for each book? How does that work? Uh, a, a good artist that's... Um, not as expensive as some of the others, but has great quality is a bit like a unicorn. So when you find <laughs> one, you'll do everything you can to hold on to them uh, yeah. and you'll pay extra to, to, you know, to hold on to them. But I find it's a little bit like a, um, <clears throat> not, not so much a revolving door. It's kind of like, you know, you get these roles in, in the business world where you'll get junior roles that someone will come into for a year or so until they learn the ropes and then they'll move up to the next position. And it's kind of understood, yeah. well, it's not a permanent role. It's, you know, someone's moving through. And artists are a lot like that because they'll get better. Uh, if, if I'm with an artist for two or three years, they'll actually improve as as they go through that process. Yeah. Um, and then usually they'll get to the point where they end up doubling their price or they get picked up by one of the big studios, uh, which is great for them. But it then means as an indie creator, it's no longer tenable for me to keep using them because either they're not available or the, the cost is prohibitive. Yeah. Um, so you tend to have um, relationships that go for a few years and then you move on and then you'll, you'll keep coming back to them and asking if they're free, you know, can you do a cover for me or do something else like an, just a standalone piece instead of a long form uh, piece. Um and then there's a few that I've worked with for a while. There's one in particular, his name's Willie Roberts. Um, and I've been working with him for about five years now. Uh, yeah. uh, he's really solid, really great, and more of a friend now than just, a, you know, an artist colleague that I work with. Um, but even so, I mean, he's such a good artist that he's he's in, you know, high demand, so it's hard to, to keep hold of. The, the other thing is the benefit of being a writer, if if you can fund the process, uh, it means that you can produce four or five books at the same time. So uh, at the moment, for instance, I've got five different projects on the go or all at yeah. different stages um, with five different artists um, and, you know, which is good, but one of the things that changes being a comic creator from being a writer, although it might be similar with, with writing novels and such, um, you become a publisher. So yeah. even if you're still going through a traditional publisher, um, you still, you know, you have to promote, you have to typeset, you have to do, do everything that a publisher does. Yeah. Um, and now you're also working with artists and cover artists and those sorts of things as well. So it, it, it is much more of a business than just a, you know, a creative pursuit. Well, I can certainly hear the enthusiasm <laughs> for your business right there. But one, one thing fascinates me in the graphic novels is, you know, uh, you've touched on the relationship between the writer and the artist, but, but how do you mm -hmm. brief uh, an artist on, on, on the layout for a graphic novel? Do you do like rudimentary storyboards and get them to 
uh, illustrate them to your desires mm. and to and fro on that, or is there some other process? Yeah, so so for most, uh, there's a really big difference between uh, manga style artwork and uh, what you would call American standard or, or just, you know, the usual sort of artwork that we're used to in the West. Yeah. Um, uh, the manga artists um, love a storyboard. They, they And a part of this is probably the style of artwork, but it's also um, the language barriers and those sorts of things. So they, they want to be able to see how, how the characters are on the page, roughly what their actions are. So I'll produce these horrendously bad um, <laughs> uh, storyboards with stick figures and, and then they will send back this amazing page, amazing page of artwork. Um, yeah. But they, they get a general sense for what I'm intending. And, and of course, on the side of my storyboard, I'll have what is effectively a script as well. Yeah. Um, giving them as much detail as I can, but when I'm when I'm doing it that way, I'll I'll also have to keep things very very clear um, and not be too flowery with the descriptions because that's just going to be lost on them. So I need to make sure I can communicate clearly. Whereas with other artists uh, that I've worked with uh, all around the world, really, um, I tend to you tend to just go with a script which is very similar to maybe a TV pilot script. It's it's a similar sort of thing. You might be slightly more descriptive in a comic script than what you are. Because you need to, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll put an image in there to say this is what I want that person to look like or this is what I mean by that kind of um, monstrous aberration or whatever it might be yeah. to give them a bit more of an idea. But it is, for most uh, artists, you just do a script and then they come back with some images and then you go back and forward. Once you've agreed on the basic characters, then they just start off and you, and you start usually... Uh, they will produce storyboards themselves or, or a rough, you know, rough draft. You sign off on those. Then they do a pencil version of the page. Uh, then they do an ink version of the page. Then they do colours or depending on the project, you might have one person that does each of those tasks individually, yeah. um, which usually hikes the price up. But that's that's professionally the way that it's done because they're they're all, you know, specialists in their own field. Uh, and then lettering is the last component, uh, adding the text and dialogue and everything. Um, like most indie creators, I've, I mean, I've got a, a bit of a background in graphic design and that sort of stuff. So I do all the lettering myself because yeah. it saves a lot of money, uh, but it also means I've got creative control at the end there. So if I want to change the the text, I can do that. Whereas it, it would be incredibly frustrating to have to go backwards and forwards with a letter, you know, when I've got an idea that I've just yeah. come up with, or, you know, all that sort of stuff. But essentially that's, that's the way it works. Um, depends on the artist, really. Yeah, you, you you still have a very strong visual aesthetic across um, mm. the books I've seen on on your website, etc. Um, is that intentional or unintentional that you that you wanted to create like a brand, I guess, for Morgan Morgan Quaid? Yeah, it's it's very intentional, and part of it um, uh, th- th- there's a something I hadn't realised until last year. Um, as I said, been writing for years, doing this sort of stuff for years and, and love the, I've always loved film and television more than I've loved books, if that makes sense. So, I I mean, I love reading, but I love the visual and it could be for a few reasons, but one, one of the things I found out last year is that I have, um, uh, what they're now calling aphantasia. Um, which essentially means I have no visual imagination. So most people, Uh, if they close their eyes and you say, all right, imagine an apple, yeah. um, they'll see a, a version of an apple. I close my eyes and I just see darkness. And that's 
always been the way I thought that was normal. I thought when people said, oh, imagine a a horse, you know, or something, I thought they were being figurative because I thought, well, no one can actually see it. All you see is black when you close your eyes. Um, But I recently found that, no, no, that's not the case at all. You're you're slightly different to most people. And apparently there's about 2 or 3% of people that have this. Um, And I think that's why I'm so attracted to the visual medium and why I... Uh, most of the things that I produce have a, a I mean, even a, co- a cover for a, um, a novel. Uh, and honestly, this probably hurts sales, if I'm being honest. Um, <laughs> I, I don't tend to go for the traditional cover that has a, you know, a live action sort of like a photo of an, a, a person with, you know, text on the front and all that sort of stuff. I'll get an artist that I know from the comic industry to, to do a whole, you know, a, a whole um, page for the cover just because I love the artwork so much, um, yeah. which again, probably doesn't make business sense because it's not what most readers are used to. But I think, you know, there's a certain point where you've got to also do what you love and what, what resonates with you. So that, you know, that's what I'm doing, but that, that might explain some of the, you know, um, also I, I'm, I'm not an artist myself. Um, uh, as I said, I'm a musician and composer and all that sort of stuff, but actual visual art, I'm not an artist, but I do do a lot of graphic design and it's kind of my way to join in, if that makes sense, to the process. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I can get the pieces of artwork that the artists have given me and then make something out of that. And it makes me feel like I'm kind of doing the artist thing, if that makes sense. <laughs> well, yeah, it's it's one one step from film or TV, I guess. I think one of the... Uh, a TV series I love is Preacher, which um, oh yeah, was based on a uh, graphic novel, and uh, I mean that, yeah. that just turned into a brilliant series. Yeah, and it's very common. Uh, 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 I mean, I hazard to say most, but a, a, a lot of the limited series on Netflix and Amazon and those, they, yeah. they've come from comic books and from graphic yeah. novels, um, definitely, and the. I mean, like you say, the good thing is if you're, uh, you know, producing one of these things or you're looking to bring in some new content uh, and you pick up an already successful comic series that is basically storyboarded for you, yeah. you know, it's very easy to see visually and aesthetically what that would look like. So it is a natural kind of progression, I suppose. Yeah. Um, is, that, is that part of the plans for the future? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So everything I write tends to have a, a film or, or TV um uh aesthetic um and that's not as i said that's probably got more to do with my creative process and how i think rather than a desire to get everything made into to film but yeah that's that's the it's not the ultimate aim because as i've grown older i've learnt to temper my expectations but also to think <laughs> clearly about what success actually means yeah uh and i no longer see you know, getting a film deal or getting something I've created made into a limited series as, you know, being the be all and end all. But I do, I would love for one of the, the the books or series that I've got to be butchered by Amazon or, uh, you know, Hulu or anyone, uh, Netflix, you know, and, you know, for a, uh, for someone to just pick it up and completely go against everything that I thought it was going to be, <laughs> that's fine. Because then I can just point people back to the original books and say, yeah, that, that wasn't really what I had in mind, but hey, you know, read the books. And that's it. Um, and you can cry into your bucket of money. So, <laughs> I can, Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. It, the, the, there's this thing. I, I get the artistic integrity and I get the, the idea that you don't want this precious thing that you've spent so much time building being wrecked. 
and this is of course me talking from a privileged position that I haven't had this happen, but I've also got to think, you know, if it's out there and it gets to Netflix and it's that big, then as a marketing tool, that's amazing. Like do what you want with it. That's fine. But my name <laughs> is now out there attached to this big thing. So I can just say, Hey, here's my, uh, you know, impressive back, you know, backlog, uh, back catalog, I should say, um, you know, get in and, and buy it. And yes, I'm definitely the guy associated with that horrific series that just really <laughs> went bad. Well, you know? it, it could go the other way. Could be like creature. Uh, it could it could absolutely go there, and yeah, preacher is a good example. Actually, it's one of the few I've seen where it's kind of on par with the original story, or yeah, even yeah. you know a little bit a little bit better. I'd maybe say, but yeah, it's um that's right. That's and that's I suppose the benefit of somewhere like um, Netflix versus traditional models of you know like trying to go through film or anything. <laughs> I have no doubt if it went to film, it would just be butchered. Um, oh yeah, you know, there's yeah. too many people involved you know it's just horrendous whereas netflix that you do see sometimes they'll you can tell they've gone to the creator and said we have very few notes we want you to do this thing your way we'll give you the money and the help and the support which you know great if they wanted to do that i'm happy to you know they could just knock on my door and uh i'll put whatever i'm doing on hold for a while i'll put it that way well netflix if you're listening uh have a look at the show notes <laughs> and get in contact with Morgan. Yeah. Um, your new book, The Seven Hungers, book one, Rise of the Crimson King, mm-hmm. looks fantastic, very gorgeously illustrated as we've been discussing. Tell, tell us a bit more about that. Uh, yeah, so The the Seven Hungers is a uh, urban fantasy thriller investigation sort of sci-fi fantasy slash horror so i'm picking up every genre imaginable just about um story so it's essentially about a censured sorcerer uh kind of a world similar to our our own but in an alternate dimension same sort of time frame and everything and this um sorcerer's name is ambrose drake and he's been censured by the crown who is effectively the governing body that that um looks after sorcery within this world and they they have a wide reach and they're fairly prohibitive in what they what they do and their whole remit is to stop anything coming through from below so the 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 wider story is that you have the earth or the hallowed world as they call it and then there are seven different layers uh, kind of like hell worlds or alternate dimensions beneath our world um, and each of them are actively trying to break through into the realm above to ultimately get to our our reality um, <clears throat> and the reason why is because there is a long-standing prophecy that essentially the the seven hungers are going to be devoured by chaos um, and there's different you know interpretations of what that means but essentially what that means is everyone below is trying to get up top and this is where you know, rumours of things like vampires and werewolves and those sort of things, they are creatures that have slipped through from the first hunger, which is the hunger directly below ah. below ours. Um, so essentially this, this guy, Ambrose, <clears throat> is a, um, uh, a sorcerer that's been censured. He's been censured because he's the only living sorcerer that travelled all the way down to the seventh hunger and came back again in one piece. Um, 
essentially uh, he was tricked by uh, a, a sovereign, a ruler down in the seventh hunger that made him believe that his uh, new bride, his wife was trapped down there. And that the woman he was living with was, uh, you know, a facsimile or a, you know, a doppelganger. Um, so he travels down there, uh, something happens. He ends up coming back and he has that, that, creature that sovereign creature living within him so she's basically hijacked his body to come back to um, earth where she wants to sort of take over the joint but there's this curious thing so throughout the book and the series there's this idea of the blood price so for something to come from any of those realms into our realm it needs to pay a certain price otherwise the natural order doesn't like it and just kicks them back to where they came from and ironically the natural price that this sort of demonic creature that's inside him has to pay is she has to keep him alive at all costs. So she's, there's this ironic situation or this interesting situation where she wants nothing more than to kill him so she can be free and she can take over the world, but she cannot kill him because her, the only reason she's in that world is by paying that, that sort of price. So anyway, it gets all very, you know, essentially the story is something emerges into the world and this sorcerer is called out of forced retirement to look at it and to um, fix the issue and, and you know, all that sort of stuff while he's got this creature inside him and all this other stuff's going on. And uh, I'll leave at this point, which is essentially as he arrives at the scene, he meets his ex-wife, who is now a high-ranking official within the Crown, and they are forced to work together. And that, that's kind of where the story um, kicks off. <laughs> where do you get your ideas from? Um, so for there's a few books or book series that have stuck with me over the years. A lot of fantasy, which you could probably guess from, from the description of the book. Um, China Mieville, I love his, his stuff. Um, Pedido Street Station. Kraken is actually my favourite book of his. Yeah. Anything he does is... I mean, it's like reading concrete. It's it's not a they're not easy re- easy reads. <laughs> That's but, true. Um, I, I just I'm a bit of an idea addict. I love ideas and new ideas and strange ideas. And his his books are just yeah. chock full of them. So I love sort of that. Um, Jack Vance from a sci-fi perspective. I loved his his stuff. You know, Kugel's Saga and those sorts of weird fanciful stories. Um, so a lot, of, a lot of books like that and more traditional um, fantasy sci-fi authors as well. Um, but I will watch absolutely anything. It doesn't matter how terrible the film is, if it's a superhero film or a sci-fi or a fantasy or even a, an alternate world noir kind of, you know, anything weird or strange, I'll watch it um, because, A, I like it, but also, B, because there's there's always an idea even in a terrible film there's one or two things that you can grab from it that just resonate and and make sense and yeah so i tend to to just do a lot of that just a lot of absorbing and thinking that's an amazing idea and and it all sort of you know cobbles together in the head and then when you start writing those ideas start coming out let's talk a bit about writing and you're incredibly prolific what's your routine uh, it's a it's a fairly simple routine. The first tip I would give uh, people is have a um, hyperactive superego uh, that tells you you're never good enough and you're never doing <laughs> enough because that's a really good motivator. Yeah, I, I don't I, I don't have the completest issue. I don't uh, or perfectionist issue. I don't have the issue that a book needs to be perfect before I release it, which is great. That means I can get a lot done. 
Um, I do have the issue that no matter what I do, it's never enough and I need to be doing more and it should have been more to begin with. You know, there's all that sort of stuff going on psychologically in the background. Um, but in terms of my um, process, I, I tend to, it's changed over the years, but these days I, I write best early in the morning. So four to six, um, depending on when I, I wake up, uh, when it's silent, when no one else in the house is up and I yeah. will just be downstairs writing. Um, but I, I, I'm also, I can't do big stints. I, I, I do a lot better in the morning with an hour or two hours per day rather than, you know, three or four hours. I, I just yeah. lose cohesion if I write too much. So yeah, it tends to be small, small amounts in the morning. Um, and also the, the other thing is, comics uh so your average comic might be i don't know two thousand three thousand words so writing an issue of a comic uh, i can do that in a day without an issue writing yeah. a you know ninety thousand word novel and then getting it edited and then re-edited and you know that takes a lot longer so you can produce a lot more uh in the comic space provided you can again fund the artwork and all that sort of stuff so it makes it look like I'm I'm more impressive than what I am is what I'm saying. All right, I still think you're very impressive. What, oh, well, thank you. What's your advice for um, writers, illustrators who want to want to self-publish graphic novels? Uh, the first thing I would say is don't don't do what I did and don't just jump in. Um, find some people that have done it before and talk to them. Uh, most most indie creators are very happy to talk and share their experience. So find them on Facebook, um, talk to them, get to know the industry and, you know, the do's and don'ts and all that sort of stuff, but also just the pitfalls. Um, because as I said before, you are effectively running a business. So you can't just think of it as a purely creative enterprise. You yeah. are running a, you know, a production business up, up front, and then you're running a promotion business to try and get the thing out there. But you, then you're also doing crowdfunding potentially, um, yeah. which is its whole other thing so first thing would be get some advice talk to people that have done it before write down everything you can and just absorb all of that um it's probably best to start with something small um so to give you an idea um uh, on the indie side uh you would usually pay anywhere from 70 to 150 dollars us per page for artwork um, most issues are around 22 pages to 24 pages. Uh, mine tend to be 30 to 40 because I'm a glutton for punishment and I, you know, I want a, a bigger story to tell people. Um, so the cost, you know, we're talking three, three to $6,000 per issue just for the artwork. And that's before you promote or you do anything else. And that's if you do your own lettering and everything as well. So because there's such a cost involved, um, I would say start small before you go in with a graphic novel um, do a, a short standalone, even like an eight page or, a, you know, 10 page, something that's, you know, affordable, you can find an artist, you can put it together um, and then run a, a, a very small Kickstarter campaign or something like that, just to get people interested, show them what you're about, uh, almost like a taster for what the bigger version is going to be. Because again, even if you're looking at a hundred dollars per page, if you're doing a hundred dollar, sorry, a hundred page, um, you know, graphic novel, that's 10,000 right there, just in the artwork. Yeah, um, yeah. And that's, that's not a big graphic novel either. Um, I mean, it's, it's an okay size, but it's not big. Um, 
the other thing might be find an artist that you're really friendly with and team up with them um, and share the load that way because then they're, they're just putting their time in rather than paying for an artist. But that's that's tricky if you don't know anyone. Uh, and most artists aren't going to do that. They'll want to be paid up front, understandably, because of the amount of work yeah. involved. The other, the other thing would be learn, yeah, give it a try on a small scale, but learn the business side of it. Unless it's just a thing you want to do as a hobby, just as a one-off, great, go for it. Throw throw your money in and just enjoy the process and go for it. But if you're wanting, you're interested in it becoming a thing that you do more long-term, um, yeah, you've got to think about the business side of things and think about how you, and again, ask people um, how you do that sort of stuff. Because, it yeah, you're, you're a small business owner, Stent. You've also been quite successful using crowdsourcing to fund the publishing of your books like Indiegogo and Kickstarter. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, sure. So, yeah, um, it's a relatively new, it's not new, but it's become a lot more popular to fund your uh, comic books on uh, or graphic novels on Indiegogo and, and uh, Kickstarter. Um, the thing I like about it is being Australian-based, it's very, very hard for me to get in front of an international audience. Um and the way that Kickstarter is set up for comics in particular, it's essentially, it's, it's as if you're pitching a table at a Comic-Con in New York and Canada and, you know, uh, Netherlands, all over the world. Um, it's on a much smaller scale, so you don't get the number of people coming through. But essentially, that's what you're doing. You're presenting your wares uh, among a lot of other comic creators to people around the world and saying, hey, here's what I can do. Um, the other thing is that it's... The, the campaigns that do really well, there are a lot of effort, um, a lot of effort, uh, but they're also, it's kind of like a carnival setting. So it, it's the more you can entertain people um, and give them an experience they're buying into more than just um, buying a product because they can go to the shop and buy the product, they can buy it online. But what you're doing is you're inviting them into the creative process and saying, hey, here's this yeah. amazing thing. I want you to be part of it. You offer special tiers so they can pay a little bit more money. Uh, for example, Shadow's Daughter, the one that that's, um, is still running on Indiegogo and uh, ran on Kickstarter, um, people could pay a little bit more and get their faces drawn into certain characters within the book. Um, you know, so you can get, you know, killed off by a monster or something like that. Um, and then you're you're genuinely part of the process because you, yeah, you've been yeah. drawn in. Um other things they can you can just add extras that you don't offer um, uh, later on when it's on Amazon or wherever it is, you know. So it's something special, you know. Uh, give you an example. One, when I was running the camp last campaign on Kickstarter, I gave away uh, a couple of T-shirts, which is a pretty standard sort of thing. So yeah. just once I had 100 followers, I said, all right, a couple of people get a free T-shirt, and then I just gave them away. So I, I of course, make a loss on that, but it's great publicity. People love it. And they're they're wearing your merchandise, you know. That's that's great advertising. Um, the other thing I did was I gave away uh, a couple of uh, essentially win your own theme tune. So because I'm a musician, it was easy for me to do. And I said, look, yeah. you want your own theme tune? Theme tune. I will build one for you from scratch, whatever genre style you want. And then that's yours. You can do with it what you will. One of them uh, delivers speeches, like, you know, she goes around and does speeches, you know, on different topics. So she's actually using this music as her intro music uh, when she when she comes on. Um, and then another one was uh, yeah, actually two others great. were comic comic creators and they um, 
they had their own projects. So I essentially designed their theme music for the video that they were going to use for their project. Um, so things like that, extra things that you wouldn't normally think people yeah, would do. Yeah. The, the, the next next campaign I'm running, I'm thinking of, I also did a, a bit of a spoof movie. Um, it was a one minute movie, kind of a Blair Witch Project horror thing. It didn't make any sense. It was just silly, but I had great fun doing it. So for the next campaign, I'm thinking of doing a, a it's a post-apocalyptic theme. So I'm thinking of doing a, a movie and inviting, you know, three or four of the um, backers into the movie. So they'll, they'll record on their own phone, send me the footage, I'll put it all together. You know, again, it's a silly, it'll be a silly thing. It'll be funny, but it's something you don't get if you go into a bookshop and it makes them feel like they're, they're part of the process. So there's a, a, a real entertainment uh, side to it and not a lot of creators are good at that yeah. um, or good at the self-promotion side of things but if you can do that it really enhances the whole process uh, and you, you you pick up fans for life essentially that there's you know I mean the numbers aren't huge but again I, I know I've got 10 or 20 people that will back every single thing I do every time because they're they love it they don't they don't just love the stories and everything else they just love the process and you know, it's um, it's fun. It's great fun. Yeah, uh, it's a great tear to be a be a character in the book <laughs> as well. Yeah, it is. It's really really cool. Talking about independent publishing, what, what do you think the hardest thing is about being an independent publisher? The the promotion's got to be the hardest. So get getting your stuff out there uh, into readers' hands in a in a very competitive market but also a, a flooded market where there are so many places for people to go to get this sort of thing and there's so much of it out there um that's really really uh hard it's hard to cut through all of that and say hey here's something i've got that's unique and it's mine and if you like this kind of thing you will love this not only will you love the first one you'll love the the 50 others that i've got coming in the next year or so you know so it's trying to hook fans but even finding them in the first place is really 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 difficult and there are lots of services around that help with that sort of thing um but again it's it's very easy to pour a lot of money into that and I, honestly i think the most damaging thing in recent times that has popped up i mean it's not recent it's been around for a long long time uh it's the whole justin bieber uh harry potter uh, overnight success myth. I'll put it that way. It's, yeah. it's the idea that, you know, it's not going to take any effort. Someone will discover you and you're massive and you've done it great. And for some people, sure, 99.9% .9 of us, you have to work hard and you have to build an audience brick by brick and you have to, it's just a constant grind to get those numbers up and to get people involved and all the rest of it. I think that's, that's part of it that can be quite draining, um, uh, and again, you've got to kind of have a bit of a business hat on and not be, you know, suddenly in the dumps when five people um, unsubscribe from your mailing list or whatever yeah. the case may be, but look at it more from a, well, no, that's good because if they're not interested, they, they wouldn't want to support the next thing I've got. So better to, for them to move on to something else and I'll get new people in it. I, I think it's a good idea for any independent publisher to, to uh, do a bit of a deep dive into internet marketing. Because it's um, mm. there's so mm. many, so much crossover. There, there is, yeah. And there's, uh, and look, I've tried it all. I've, I've, <laughs> I've tried, I've tried the paid stuff, the free stuff, the, and honestly, the 
thing that I've found that works best is, is just consistency and, you know, slowly growing and then, you yeah. know, holding on to the people you've got, all that sort of stuff. It's, there's no That's kind it. of overnight stuff. Yeah. And unless you've, you're with a publisher, the size of, um, I think it was Scholastic or whoever it was that um, Harry Potter was pushed out through, yeah. but the, the number of millions of dollars that went out when that first came out, like there's a, there's a reason it's successful. A, it's you know wonderfully written, great story, all the rest of it. But B, the amount of money behind it is is astronomical. We don't have that, so you know you've got to use other other mechanisms. You've got to build your tribe, and you've done a great job of that. That's right. That's right. And and that's the other, that's the only thing. The other thing that's that's what I was saying earlier about the measure of success changing for me. I, I don't need millions and millions of people knowing me, following me, buying my stuff. I need enough people buying my stuff that I can keep doing it and that I, you know, get engagement from people. And yeah, it's, it's the, the whole thousand followers, you know, th- or a thousand genuine fans that, that yeah. genuinely love everything I do. That's, you know, which is probably 10 to 20,000 fans, but 1000 core fans maybe yeah yeah so you, we spoke earlier about brand and the aesthetics of the stuff that i do and lots of stuff the the other thing is uh, i love to have fun i love to things to be a bit weird and a bit strange and you know all the rest of it and i like making fun of more serious you know sort of genres and things and um so i had to make a decision what, how am i going to present myself what am i going to do the first the first step to get over as a creative is get your face out there which is a big one for most of us because we don't want to do it yeah um but once you get past that if you can get past it you, that's when you start seeing momentum really growing so my, my my face is unashamedly everywhere and i've only really started it's only really been a year i kid you not a year and a half <laughs> since i started actively promoting my own image and all the rest of it um, and the, the way I trick myself into doing that is, is there's, there's two Morgans, if that makes sense. There's the writer me, and then there's the marketing me and the marketing yeah. me yeah. doesn't care about the writer at all, or even the product. He doesn't care about, it's just how many of these can I shift and how do I get them in, in front of eyes? And That's it. You've kind of got to split those two up completely. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I've, uh, the other thing that I, I decided was I'm going to be, uh, probably for the first time true to myself so i'm going to do things that i think are uh, engaging and funny and great and and write the sort of stories that i like i'm not going to for instance write romance because a i would be horrible at it um even though it's the biggest market out there and you know if you did it the right way you could potentially get a lot of money but that's not me it's i would hate every second of it i'm you know so i'm going to do the things that i, I like and try and bring like-minded people, you know, to me rather than trying to go for the numbers or trying to go like, you see a lot of in the marketing side, particular, it's uh, particularly on the sort of self-help books or the nonfiction books, uh, you know, your title, make sure that your title says exactly the thing that you're selling and that you're doing. And it matches your keywords on Amazon and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. And as a fiction writer, it's like, but but I want my title to be awesome. I want the title to, to mean something and be, and it's not going to fit any keywords. It's not, you know, yeah, yeah. It's, it's sort of that, that struggle between those two, but anyway, sorry, getting back to the, the, the original question, which we're a long way off now. Yeah. Twitter I've <laughs> always fun. found to be disastrous um, for a few reasons. I just never get any traction. Um, 
uh, Instagram, I like because of the imagery, because a lot of what I do has imagery. So that, that kind of works. And Facebook has been the best just in terms of connecting with people, uh, having people connect me and say, like I've written for a few other comic creators that I didn't know that just contacted me and said, hey, I read your stuff, really like it. Would you be interested in, you know, writing on this? Um, so, yeah, that's sort of those those two are the bigger ones in uh, rather than Twitter. I'm still on Twitter and I still do occasional things, but it it does feel a bit like you're, you know, shouting at the sea. And, and there's, there's no room on Twitter for forgiveness, changing your mind, <laughs> having a, a, your opinion change. You know, it's, it's just not the place. For it. it's, it's just people shouting at other people. Anyway, talking about advice, what, what's the best bit of writing advice you've received? Oh, we ask the deep questions on the writer's show. You do, you do. Digging, <laughs> digging deep. Um, I, it, this is a, again, it's broader than the writing. Uh, um, a lot of the editorial stuff I've gone through has just helped because I'm terrible at editing my own, <laughs> my own work. But one of the best things, uh, it's the guy, oh, I'm going to forget his name now. So I didn't know him personally, but I did a course uh, with the guy that wrote Devil in a Blue Dress. Um, oh. um, really cool writer, really cool. Moses, oh, I can't remember his surname. Anyway, um he, um, yeah, greatest advice is basically you don't become a boxer and expect not to get hit, essentially. If you become a writer, you're going to need to step in the ring, which means you're going to get rejections and you're going to get bad reviews and you're going to get people that don't like your stuff. And that's all part of the process. So he was telling a story that, um, you know, he's, he's written, you know, 30 books at this stage, bestsellers, movies with Denzel Washington, all this sort of stuff writes a new book, sends it to a, a new literary agent. And she, she basically goes back to him and says, let's grab some time and I'll tell you how to write a book properly. And it's kind of like, okay. So, it, so it doesn't matter at what stage you are, it's still the rejection and all of yeah. that sort of stuff uh, comes with it. That was really good. Cause it, it, there's this real f- uh, fear of failure, fear of putting yourself out there, all that sort of stuff. That was, that's been the biggest thing for me is not, is just not to worry about that, to get out and fail and enjoy the process because for every person that, you know, bothers to tell you your stuff is crap or they don't like it or whatever, there are many more that will like it. They're, they're usually just not as um, verbal with it. But that, that, that I think was, is really good. That's really helped me just to be a bit more courageous and just to go out there and, and, and even try things and, don't worry about failing because that's that's how you get better and how you learn and all the rest of it and it's not you know that's great advice and uh i think we'll wrap it up there it's been great great chatting to you um where where can listeners buy your books um pretty much um anywhere online uh easiest way is probably just to go to uh morganquade.com and there's all information there and links and all that sort of stuff but yeah all all the usual culprits amazon and, and other places um but um, yeah, morganquade.com is probably the easiest place for people to go. And by all means, um, you know, find me and stalk me on social media and always willing to have a chat with people. So um, yeah, get in touch. Fantastic. Thanks for chatting. Thanks, Jeff. It's been a pleasure.
Hey, that was Morgan Quaid, and you can buy Morgan's books and discover all things Morgan Quaid at where else? MorganQuaid.com. That's Q U A I D. MorganQUAID.com. Of course, all the show notes for this episode are on our website, The Writer Show, TheWriterShow.com. This podcast is produced by Madhouse Media Publishing. If you need help publishing your book, then get in touch with the experts at madhousemedia.com.au. Whew, too many URLs. That's it for today's show. It's been fun. I'm your host, Jeff Hughes. Thanks for hanging around. Can I ask you a favor? Just a little one. If you're enjoying the podcast, leave us a review. Is that too much to ask? Thanks. Promised you it wouldn't hurt. You're a great bunch of listeners, and I love you all. Till next time, this is the Writer's Show podcast. (laughs) 